Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're recording this on a cool day in early March when we are inexplicably seeing snowfall in Seattle and Portland, an absolutely insane level of fidelity to the predictions of Punxsutawney Phil way back on Groundhog Day. Now, I'm still anxious to get outside and do some of that late winter pruning for my trees and shrubs, but I really want to time it just right. And I also know, check out this segue, that families are just as anxious about timing the start of their college research process and planning for the coming year, getting visits on the calendar, and even selecting courses for next fall. Now, spring is a time for new growth and development, a time when we begin to plan and think excitedly about opportunities to come. And it's no different when it comes to high school planning and college applications. And of course, we're here every single week to help you get everything in order. Now, on today's show, we'll talk about how much is too much to borrow for your college education. And we'll even start to think about getting your own personal college list going. But before that, we want to spend some time in this first segment talking about course planning with an eye on the most populous state in the union, California. Joining me from fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, is my colleague, Joy Biscornet. Welcome to the show, Joy. Hi, Ian. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you, and I know you and I both lived in the state of California for a few years in the past, and we both counseled a nice full roster of California students when we were there. Um, and so I think we, we know a little bit about what we're talking about, even though now we're just a state away, me in Oregon, you in Nevada. Um, so let's talk a little bit about these A to G requirements. A to G requirements are something that are very common in conversation among California students, but maybe some of our listeners don't know a lot about what those are, and uh, we want to sort of introduce that concept to everyone today as a understanding of, of requirements and curriculum as it pertains to the UC system and then the rest of the country as well. So let's start with just the basics. For those who live a little farther away, maybe haven't heard of these, what exactly are the A to G requirements? The A to G requirements are subject requirements. They're 15-year-long college preparatory courses that are established by the University of California, or UC for short, um, and they are the minimum required courses that students must take during high school in order to be eligible to apply to the UCs. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now... A to G is, there's some weird letters there. Um, and I think, you know, usually when we think about academics, we think about A's, B's, C's, you know, when we talk about grades, is there any particular reason that you know of that the UC uses this A to G designation for these courses? Or, or is it just one way of labeling categories? From my knowledge, it's one way of labeling uh, categories because an A doesn't, uh, isn't uh, an abbreviation for a course or even a subject. As an example, the A requirement is history. Uh, the B requirement is English. So I think that these are just numerical requirements that, uh, excuse me, alpha- 
alphabetical requirements um, right. uh, that are used as abbreviations for the subject areas that are required of each student to fulfill in order to be eligible. And in my understanding, I know you were a counselor for a high school in California, but when I talk to students about this, they usually talk about it in terms of the actual subject. They say, I got to get my history requirement. I have to do my math requirement. I have to get my science requirement. Um, for the most part, do you find that students and families refer to the A to G requirements individually by the subject area or more by the letter that it's associated with? I think when they're speaking individually they about the requirements that they need, they'll say it by the subject itself. So history, English, lab science, uh, the arts requirement. Uh, they don't, the, in my experience, students didn't come into my office and sit down and say, okay, so I need my E requirement. Right. Um, they always would say, I need my language other than English or what's my world language requirement. So A through G, I think, is more for the use of um, the University of California itself in speaking to a collection of required courses. But um, in my experience, students and, and families didn't talk about the A requirement or the G requirement. They referred to it by its actual subject. Great. And I, I, that's, that's good. I mean, if I had a student that came to me and said, I need to think about my C requirement, I would have to look it up because I don't, I don't know what they're associated with. I just know which what, you know, which requirements are contained within the total. And I think that that's good news for students that maybe don't live in California and aren't familiar with the specifics of the A to G requirements, but do understand the nature of what we would call academic solids, English class, math class, history class, et cetera. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, we do talk about those solids with students all over the country, uh, but A to G requirements are, are sort of these very specific carved out requirements. Who, who should actually care about these? What students should be interested in knowing what the A to G requirements are and, and sort of keeping to those as a part of their academic study? I think any student who is interested in uh, applying to the University of California system, um, even students that are interested in, in applying to the Cal State, because the Cal State um, will also have the A through G requirements. Um, but any student who is really thinking about coming into the California public university system needs to be aware of what these uh, requirements are because it is a central point of uh, the application process. These are requirements to even be eligible. So whether you're applying as a, a California state resident or if you're in New York and you're thinking about having experience, an experience for college that's on the other side of the country, you need to know what uh, courses or subject areas you need to fulfill in in order to um, even have it be uh, the UCB in your conversation. And I think that, um, you know, for, for students that live in California, the high school graduation requirement typically aligns with the A to G requirements. And that's because high school uh, high schools within the state of California feel like they want to prepare their students to be eligible for the UCs just as a matter of practice, as a matter of policy. But you're not going to find that in New York. You know, New York is not preparing students to get ready to be eligible for the state of California, nor is North Dakota, nor is Florida. 
what is something that students outside the state of California need to pay extra attention to within these requirements that they might not be satisfying within their home state, given the requirements that their home state might have for graduating from high school? Mm-hmm. So, um, in addition to the, the five academic subject areas that we always want students to pursue as, as part of a comprehensive high school plan, um, so English, math, uh, science, world language, and social studies or, or history, um, the UC system also has a requirement of um, visual or performing arts, and that's not something that's necessarily um, a requirement in the length of time um, that uh, you might experience outside of uh, California. So the visual and performing arts requirement is that each student must have um, a year-long course in visual or performing arts from either dance, drama, music, or an interdisciplinary art or visual art or two one-semester courses from the same discipline. Um, So this is not something that um, every student um, in every school across the country might know that they need to have. So this is, or to have a full year. So you might have a semester-long art course as part of your overall um, high school uh, career if you're living outside of California. But that's one thing to keep in mind, that... um, a visual, a year-long visual and performing arts course is needed, and also that you need to have some sort of college preparatory elective. And what this is from the UC standpoint is one year um, in addition to the required A through F categories. So those are your academic subjects. Um, it needs you need to have an additional year chosen from either um, history. English, math, lab science, language other than English, or even visual and performing arts. So there's that extra year of an elective um, that the UC wants to see. And uh, elective, I think, sort of takes on a different term within the context of A to G than we would typically see within a high school. So, you know, when I was in school, electives were things like HOMEC or SHOP, PE, um, you know, things that were sort of outside of the academic spectrum. In this case, we wouldn't say that the, the college preparatory elective is still an academic course. You get to choose which one it's going to be, but it's going further than what is expected within the context of the initial A through F requirements. So elective has a slightly different term here. It's sort of choosing from a menu of options, but there have to be, uh, that menu of options includes certain kinds of classes. Um, Now, Joy, we're sort of talking about this in the language of requirements. Um, You know, what's the difference here between a requirement and uh, recommendation or competitiveness. How do students think about whether these are things that they have to do in order to eligible, be eligible? And then what are things that students have to do if they want to be competitive, uh, especially for more selective uh, UC campuses? That's a great question. So the requirements, as I mentioned, there's 15 courses that students have to take in order to be eligible. And that's also the minimum that they must take. So in, in order to even think about the UC system, there are 15 courses in the subject areas that we've discussed that students must take. However, 
most of the students who are applying to the UC system and who are competitive go above and beyond those minimum requirements so that they're taking um, somewhere usually between 23 and 29 year-long courses. So if the recommend, if the requirement for admission or eligibility to the UC is two years of history as the, the A requirement, most students are going above that and taking three, even four years of history. Same with mathematics, lab science, and even language other than English. So students are going above and beyond. So um, what the requirement is and, and looking at more of how they can present themselves to have a full complement of courses in rigorous programs um, to make themselves competitive for um, the UC process. Yeah, so I, there were two really great things that you said there, uh, Joy. I, the first thing that I thought was really valuable was just a better understanding of the fact of the what makes you competitive is not going to be the bare minimum requirement. And that's something that's going to be true not just for the UCs, but for the vast majority of colleges and universities. They're establishing a baseline. But for students to be really competitive and to have a strong application, you often need to go beyond that baseline. Um, I also really appreciated that you're you're including the language other than English in this conversation because I think it often gets sort of pushed to the side when when families think about their core academic courses and including that as one of those main five areas with English and math and science and social science, I think is really important, uh, especially as it pertains to, um, you know, really competitive schools. So that's something we harp on in this class a lot or on this uh, show a lot. And I I really appreciate that um, in in your conversation as well, Joy. Um, Now, with almost every policy in college admission, there's always an exception. Um, And there is an exception to fulfilling the A to G requirements for some students. Can you talk a little bit about the admission by examination criteria that that students use? Sure, sure. And um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that you're speaking about the other ways that students can meet the requirements uh, if it's not through a particular class. Am I correct? Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. So the the thing that um, I find to be pretty unique about the UC system is that in addition to um, the approved courses or the high school courses um, that they uh, lay out as requirements, students also have the opportunity to meet these requirements through examinations. So we'll use history as an example. Um, the high school course requirement is two years of history. If a student does not have two years of history, there's a couple of other ways they can go about it. Um, they can take a SAT subject exam. So the, the course requirement is one year of history, uh, one full year of U.S. history, and then one full year of European history. So if a student doesn't have say, European history, they can take the World History SAT subject exam, and if they score um, a 540 or higher, that satisfies that one year of world or European history that's required for that history requirement. Um, There are also ways that a student can um, satisfy it with a different type of exam, either an AP or an IB exam. 
So for U.S. history, say, for some reason a student um, didn't meet the requirement with a U.S. history course, if uh, they, with their grade, because uh, for the UC, you have to get at least a grade of C in order to have that class count towards the eligibility requirements. Um, so say you didn't get a C in... U.S. history for some reason, um, but you were able to take the AP U.S. history exam. If you scored a three, four, or five on the AP uh, history exam, you would satisfy the the U.S. history requirement. Right, and and that's that's a great explanation. And I think, you know, as you think about this, I think some students might say, "Oh, that's that's really good." So I don't really have to worry uh, about my grades in the class. I just have to do well on the exam. And I, I think that that's not quite what uh, what the approach is here. So you you do have to still do well in the class when you take it. But I see this admission by examination as an opportunity for you to do something in a short period of time, because you, you may not be able to take a class over the course of an entire year, to still satisfy the requirement for admission to the UC system. Um, so this is a really great exception, uh, but it's not something that I think should be the norm. A student shouldn't strive to gain admission to the UCs solely through examinations. They really should focus on their academic courses. Um, Joy, is there anything else about the A to G courses in, in the last you know 30 seconds that we have that you think is particularly helpful for students to understand? Um, I think it's just helpful that for, for anyone who's looking at um, the UCs, that they should go on to the University of California admission website. It's very comprehensive. It is uh, fairly user-friendly. There's a lot of great information that clearly spells out what the requirements are, particularly if you're a, a California resident, if you're a non-resident, if you're a homeschooled student, if you're coming from an international curriculum. So I think that the, the UC system has done a great job in explaining um, requirements that can seem quite complex in um, an easy in, in in an easy way for students and their families. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I, I think that's 100% true and, and really enjoy the clarity in the language from the UC website. So, uh, Joy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking us through these requirements. Uh, was, was this your first time on the show or have you been on before? Um, this is my first time chatting with you, but I've been on the show before. Well, I would have remembered if we had chatted before, uh, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to I want to thank you for coming on again and uh, look forward to having you rejoin us soon. Maybe maybe it'll be to talk about cheese. I don't know if our, our listeners are lucky. Uh, it'll be about cheese. <laughs> That'd be great. Thanks so much, Ian. Awesome. Folks, when we come back, we're going to get started on the college list building process. So if you know a high school junior, you want to participate in that conversation. Don't go anywhere. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Now, when March strikes here at College Coach, we find ourselves inundated with requests for college lists. And it's something that we really enjoy doing to help support our students as they search for the best college options for their educational goals. But developing a college list is also something that takes a lot of time, takes expertise, takes research, if it's going to be an effective part of your process. And today, we want to start to unpack the process of building the list with one of our most experienced and knowledgeable educators, Mary Sue Yun. Welcome to the show, Mary Sue. Thanks, Ian, for having me. Of course. And Do you have any idea in your time here how many college lists you've actually made? <laughs> Can you estimate um, that? Can you ballpark it? <laughs> it's probably, it's, it's definitely in the thousands. Um, uh, I'm going to say... Two or three thousand, maybe. Okay, that's that's, (laughs) a lot. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Yeah, crazy. Um, So when we talk about the college list, I think the phrase "the college list" is a really simple phrase, but I also think that people use it in lots of different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. It takes a different shape at a variety of different stages throughout a student's high school process. When you think of a college list, um, how do you define it? In what form do you kind of think about that that list? So I really think of it, um, use the word process, and I think process is an important point here. Uh, It is a part of a student's journey, and the list will eventually get to the list that um, is is, is the schools that the student is actually applying to, but, you know, that's not where it's going to start. So it's a process by which the student starts to figure out really what they want in their college experience. And that requires, as you said, a lot of research, uh, and it requires a lot of introspection on the part of the student to do it well and to get to a point where you find that eventual application list of colleges that you would be happy with and that are a good 
uh, match for you on academic and other personal factors that you might be looking for in your uh, next step in higher education. So, um, but it's always something that's evolving. Hopefully, students get fairly set in their list um, by kind of fall of senior year, but it's a process to get there, and it's not going to be something that happens in a day or a week. It's generally a process that's going to take several months or, or maybe even a year or so to kind of figure out um, what will actually um, be on that student's list. Yeah, it really, the, the idea of it as being something that is almost a living document that is malleable, mm-hmm. that is, it, it, I think is really important for students to understand because when we talk about the college list, I think we always think about it as being fixed in, in a moment in time. Um, mm-hmm. And we see it at a lot of different stages from the first draft of possibilities to the, the final list of colleges where students are going to apply. But, but I, I think for our purposes, it's really helpful to think about it more as a, a research process. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in, in terms of getting started, there, there are a lot of great resources out there for building a list, including tools like uh, Navion some students have within their high schools. Maybe they have a, a high school guidance counselor who's going to help them, uh, guidebooks, maybe even you know people like us at College Coach to help students with those lists. Now, how would you suggest that a student start working on their own list? What, what are some things that they might consider at the beginning, especially if they don't have you know, an expert sitting next to them helping to point out Mm -hmm. some of the options that might be available. So I would say it really starts with a a conversation and a family conversation about what would be the things that the student really ideally would have in their college experience. And so what are kind of the must-have things? What are the nice-to-have things? What are the things that you don't want in your college experience? And also realize that that can somewhat be evolving as a student matures. So I, sometimes I'll start a conversation, a list conversation, with a student that's um, younger. You know, maybe the parents are asking questions when the student is in ninth or 10th grade, and I'll turn to the student and say, so what do you want? And they I get sort of deer in the headlights, blank stare, because at that right. point in their lives they may not know what they want. They may not know what they want to major in or how far away from home they want to go. And so it's starting just to plant the seed and ask the questions. Um, I often recommend that students start the process of actually thinking about the list by going out and visiting some colleges and, and trying to sample colleges that are very different from each other deliberately. Um, you know, go see some small schools, some large schools, some city schools, some more suburban or rural environments. If you're interested perhaps in technical fields, go see a technical school as opposed to a comprehensive university. So sampling a few different types of higher education environments may allow the student to start to think about, oh, when I saw that school, I liked this aspect or I didn't like that aspect. And just starts to have them put a vision in their head of, of what they could see themselves doing for their, their next step in college. So yeah. that's how I usually say start is start thinking and start maybe visiting to notice those things uh, that appeal to you and that, and that don't appeal to you. Yeah, that really reminds me of the the home buying process when I when I mm-hmm. met with my realtor and and the first thing he said was what we're going to start with is I just want you to see a lot of homes. I want you to mm-hmm. see as many different examples of places you can live as possible and I want you to understand what 
your price point is going to get you. And and just mm-hmm. being sort of exposed to that and and being able to establish some sort of calibration for me on what I was looking for was really helpful. And you know, I was I was up in Seattle with Microsoft earlier this week and was talking about, you know, if you live in the Seattle area, there are some really great schools you can get to pretty easily between the University of Washington and University of Puget Sound and Seattle University and Evergreen State College. That's four schools that are really really different from each other mm-hmm. that show you, you know, things that you might like or, or might not like. And, and, you know, a lot of the room was like, oh, this is really interesting. We'd never thought about just looking in our own backyard to see what the schools are that are available there and whether those are interesting to us. Now, these early visits that you're recommending, especially as they pertain mm-hmm. to this college list, typically students are looking for different kinds of things than they might be looking at when they're visiting a college as a senior. What are the questions students should be asking and what should they be looking for in these early visits? So I think the early visits are really more about uh, what does the college experience seem like? Uh, You know, is this a school that has a lot of larger lecture classes, for example? Are they going on the tour into rooms where there's, you know, two or 300 seats? So that might give you some indication as to how big some of the classes are at that school versus a a smaller school might give um, on the tour you know, smaller seminar-style classes. So starting to sort of see things like the size of the classes, um, what are things that students are talking about in terms of um, what they do for student life on campus, what are activities that students might be involved in, and just starting to kind of ask those questions about, okay, so what might I find appealing about this. Sometimes, you know, students, when I send students out to go on some visits, they come back and talk a lot about the social aspects or the, you know, well, I liked, you know, what that student was wearing or that kind of thing. And I always say, okay, that is important kind of to see a vibe and to see whether you feel like you would fit into this environment. But, you know, don't totally roll out out of school because you didn't like what the tour guide was wearing or what their boots look like on that particular day. Because that's not, you know, a great reason to to roll out of school. Um, Really think about sort of the bigger picture questions of, you know, how often might I get to interact with faculty members at this school? Um, what do students do? What's the residential life experience like? Uh, what types of classes might I take? What might be the structure of their curriculum? Kind of the bigger picture questions uh, are sort of the first things. And then later on, senior, junior, senior year, you might start to ask the more specific questions about your particular major interests or very specific activities that you want to know if they're, they have on campus. So this is more the big picture look at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. Sort of choosing not to go to a school because you don't like the shirt the tour guide's wearing like is like not buying a house because you don't like the color of the paint in the master bedroom. <laughs> you know, that, that, that can change. It's it's a small thing ultimately. Um, but, you know, as you're describing this stuff, you're even using vocabulary and terminology that might be somewhat unfamiliar to ninth or 10th mm-hmm. graders around curriculum, around activities, you know, on, on a college campus. And so there is a, a sense in which you're defining a glossary of terms on which you you can base research later on when you get older and you can't visit everywhere. So you, you want to be able to investigate schools based on the terms that you understand from, from some of these early calibrating visits. So l- <laughs> let's, let's move ahead a little bit. So we we're talking a little bit about the earlier ninth and 10th grade. Let's move ahead to 11th graders. It's March. <laughs> They're in the middle of the spring. 
they've got an idea now of their first five semesters of grades. They've got probably some test scores at this point or, or at least an idea of what their test scores might look like. How mm-hmm. does their academic profile sort of affect the kind of early college list that they might have at this point in the process? So I think that, well, the very early list, the, so very early ideas, the ninth and 10th grade, I would say don't really look so much at the academics. When you're getting into 11th grade, I might, just, I might say start to narrow it a little bit so that you're at least looking at colleges that are, you know, sort of somewhat in the academic range uh, that you would hope to be in. Uh, and some of the indicators for that might be doing some of that research either through your high school's guidance office or through any of the many college search engines that are available online uh, and kind of finding, okay, what's the admit rate of the school? What maybe are their average test scores? Some of those metrics might be able to give you a clue as to whether you're kind of in the right academic range generally for the school. Um, I don't think you need to pinpoint it precisely, even as an Mm -hmm. 11th grader, but you also, you know, if you, for example... Um, are a B student in sort of college prep and honors classes, you don't want to be looking at all colleges where the average accepted student has straight A's and all AP classes, and it is unlikely that you would be, you know, a candidate, a competitive candidate for the school. You do want to have um, some sense as to whether you'd be academically in the range, but I don't think you have to be pinpointing it quite exactly um, on those 11th grade visits even. So right. Right. Yeah, so that's how I think about it from that perspective. Yeah, there's there's still time, right? I mean, you still have another semester where your your total grade performance might improve. You still have an opportunity to take more tests. And, of course, there's the qualitative portions of the application, like your, mm-hmm. your letters, your extracurricular involvement that are not captured on a school profile or freshman class mm-hmm. profile. So those things are important as well. Um, but it is good to have at least a rough idea. You want a, at least a sense of what you should be looking at. And even in that case, Mary Sue, we're sort of in a position where there are lots and lots of possibilities. There are lots mm-hmm. of schools that any given student might be competitive for, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there are quite that many that a student's going to be interested in. So what are some of the initial sort of attributes that you would encourage students to use to start to narrow that list down pretty quickly so it gets into a more manageable size? So I think it's really thinking about kind of what are the drivers in your list process. Um, Some students have a lot of drivers and specific criteria, and some students are very open. Um, One of the more frustrating um, conversations that we sometimes have with students is, you know, a student who comes to us and says, I'm open to anywhere in the country, any size of school, and much like, you know, your house analogy, a, a student who says that, it's really hard to actually find something that would be a great match for them because it's kind of in your in your house buying analogy saying I'll I'll take a house anywhere anywhere in the country any neighborhood any color <laughs> any number of bedrooms so yeah. it's starting yeah. to think about okay what are what are the drivers do I need to have that do I need to have three bedrooms is that a driver do I need to have a certain major on that campus um, and what are the must-haves and what are the things that are a little more flexible in your search? If you have a student who has a very narrow major interest, like, for example, um, aerospace engineering, that might be something that is only available at a few hundred colleges in the country. So that's going to narrow the search pretty quickly as yeah. opposed to someone who says, I want to be an English major or a biology major. That kind of major is going to be available at most colleges 
across yeah. the country. So you know, if I, there is a major driver, that might narrow the, the list pretty quickly. I was just going to um, say, I, I, I did a, uh, just a quick look for a student on Tuesday, just yesterday, for aerospace engineering. There are only 99 schools in the country that offer an aerospace engineering major. So that will really yep. narrow things down really fast. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, and then ahead. it's kind of also thinking about other factors that may be big family factors, like sometimes uh, the, the cost of the school might be a big factor, the distance from home might be a big factor. Um, so some of those pieces, it's good to continue having those discussions about whether this is in that must-have or driver ca- category or not. So uh, it's it's early March right now, mm-hmm. um, and I, I want to just sort of, we have about two minutes left, and I, I want to think mm-hmm. about the size of this list at a few different stages in the process. So let's say it's April 1st, um, and the students have started thinking about their college list right around now. Um, about how many schools should be on that list on April 1st, um, and then what are they doing over the course of the late spring and summer to get that thing down to the, you know, seven or so schools that we recommend students apply for? Mm -hmm. So I would say at this time um, of their process, again, it depends on how open the student is to various things, but I would ideally like the student to be maybe researching 30 to 40 schools, you know, in about that range um, with that idea of that over the summer, when I work with students, I always say, by by the time you start senior year, I would like your list to be pretty well set. Um, And how do you get it from 30 or 40 to that seven is by researching, visiting, talking to people you know who might have some exposure experience at that particular university, you know, kind of expanding the network and finding out um, what what else could you find out about this school that would help you determine whether it should stay on your list and you are actually going to apply, or whether it's you know on the maybe column or maybe it's off the list at this point? Um, and also keeping in mind kind of the competitiveness of the school, I also think it's important to make sure that there is some balance in the list so that you have some of your reach schools and you have also your safer school options and you have your target schools right in the middle. So there should be some academic range on the list as well. Um, So thinking now about 30 to 40 and then cutting it down through all those research and visits to, you know, hopefully by the end of the summer, early fall um, to the ones that you actually want to apply to. That's great. I, I think that's a really nice sort of description of what the timeline looks like. And it's something that you want to just chip away little by little as you go through this process. You can't do all of your research all at once. Let yourself sort of, you know, treat this as an ongoing project. As, as Mary Sue, you said at the beginning, it's a, it's a process that you're really working for. And, and that's a great place to leave it. Um, thanks for the great segment. I think it's going to be really helpful for families. Um, and I want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing all that wisdom with us. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. And have fun, everyone, as you go visit colleges. Yeah, enjoy. Uh, All right, that's two segments down. We got one to go. We started with early high school, just covered high school juniors. Up next, it's the seniors. How much is too much to borrow? Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, before we turn our attention to the world of college financial aid, I, I want to take a moment to turn on our school spotlight. Given all the lush vegetation on its serene 200-acre campus, it can be easy to forget that Haverford College resides 10 miles from a major urban area. Yet Haverford's location affords its 1,300 students many unique opportunities, such as cross-registration with nearby Bryn Mawr and Swarthmore Colleges, as well as access to phenomenal cultural opportunities in the city of Philadelphia. Guided by Quaker values and one of the oldest honor codes in the country, Haverford places a great deal of trust in its students, as is evidenced by self-scheduled, unpracticable exams and a lack of RAs in the residence halls. Close student-faculty relationships are the norm at Haverford, as over 60% of faculty choose to live on campus, and more than 90% of classes enroll fewer than 30 students. Intellectual to their core, students here enjoy receiving a highly personalized educational experience, and all students, regardless of their major, complete a senior thesis prior to graduation. Good to know, the college guarantees to meet 100% of demonstrated need for all admitted students and adheres to a no-loan policy for families earning less than $60,000 annually. A no-loan policy is obviously a great feature of Haverford, but it's for a narrow population of families, and it might not be something that's available at the school that you ultimately choose to attend. So what do you do if you need to borrow? Joining me to talk about borrowing for higher education is Beth Feinberg-Keenan from our team of financial aid experts. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So we're getting into the award letter season. We're starting to learn where students are going to be getting into college. And as they start to receive these award letters, is there a good rule of thumb for families to think about as they're trying to figure out how much to borrow for the education? So I think this, you know, to be honest, Ian, I think that there's a couple of rule of thumbs that are out there, but okay. one 
one thought that I often share with families is students might want to think about what they're going to earn in the future, and the amount that they borrow should not exceed their first-year salary. So let's say that a student's looking at studying, you know, engineering, maybe business, and they might think that they're going to start out of college making $50,000. So then when they're thinking about how much they should borrow, well, maybe no more than $50,000 is a good level, good student loan debt level that they should keep their overall education debt without within. But it's also hard to explain that as good as a to a college student because that's really where they want to go to school. Yeah. So I often try to say to families, you know, really this is a personal choice. You know, I'm just giving you some guidelines, but it's really a personal choice. And when, you, when you're thinking about how much debt is too much debt, the biggest component is you want to make sure that it's manageable uh, when they graduate and also the debt that they're taking on. They want to make sure that's not going to impact really future choices and options, uh, maybe for graduate school or for their choice of jobs in the future. So, and when you say you don't want to borrow more than you'll earn in your first year uh, uh, after you graduate, you're saying borrow more in total uh, over the four years or just in that first year of their education? Borrow in total. Okay, borrow in total. good. So $50,000, is that, if that's going to be their starting salary, then they should really look at around $50,000 as their total debt for the four years or gotcha. however many years it will take to complete their degree. Now, when you get a financial aid package for your first year, you, you typically, you get a, a nice variety of loans potentially that might be offered to you. I remember when I got into grad school, I got a huge number of loans that were made available to me. Um, should families just go for it and take all the loans that are made available to them? Or is there some strategy for assessing the quality of those loans? Well, Ian, I imagine that the loans that you got at a graduate level are probably a lot higher in amounts. Mm-hmm than some of the undergraduate students are getting on their financial aid packages. And it's important for students to understand, well, what are these different types of loans? Is it a student loan? Is it a parent loan? Really, what's being offered as part of that financial aid package? Uh, Because realistically, the most that students can borrow for their first year of college is $5,500. That's what they're going to get in a federal loan. Anything that they might see on the financial aid package above and beyond that $5,500 might be a parent loan. It might be another institutional loan that the school is offering, so they need to find out, well, what does it mean? Do I have to make payments on that loan while I'm in school? Do I need a co-signer on that loan? And you know, what, are, what, pay, what are payments going to look like when I have to start making payments on these loans? Often families say to me, like, hey, you know what? We don't need anything our freshman year. We've got that covered. Our Mm -hmm. gaps are really going to be more significant in the junior and senior year when we've, you know, exhausted all of our savings or exhausted, you know, all of our resources. So what I often suggest to families to do is, you know, really maximize the federal student loans that the students are able to borrow and then look at how they're going to fill out, fill the differences with other loans or the savings. But I think back to when I was in college, I had the fame, same federal student loans that students are taking out today. And I look back, I graduated with about $22,000 in federal student, federal student loan debt. And it wasn't terrible. It was something that I could afford. One of my, just one of something I share with families is when I, 
went into repayment. My payments were about $243 a month. I also bought my first car at the same time, and my payment was 245 So I look at my, at my education as an affordable car payment. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That is not necessarily the case uh, these days that you're, you're looking at. That's, that's a pretty reasonable sort of indebtedness that you're graduating mm-hmm. with. Um, what about the, the parent loans? You mentioned parent loans. Are there things that parents need to consider as they're, they're taking out parent loans to cover the shortfalls? You, you've got the federal loans for the student. When, what might a parent think about as re, with respect to that parent loan? I think parents also have to think about what their monthly loan payment is going to look like. Uh, parents have the ability yeah. to defer payments on those on many of the parent loans that they take out. So if they're going to take out the plus loan uh, to cover the shortfall, uh, parents can opt to deferring that loan and kind of just, I want to say, forgetting about it. Um, if the parents could opt to defer that loan until after the student graduates, then they might want to consider making interest-only payments while the student's in school. Mm. And, you know, figure out what that monthly loan payment's going to look like. Also figure out, if you're doing this for your first child, do you have other children that you're going to be also helping them finance their degrees? Because I often find out that, you know, families may say to me, like, look, we took out a parent loan for the first child or the first two children. Our monthly payments are X. We can't afford to take out another loan for additional children. What's the school going to be able to do to help me? But Families have to realize that many schools don't take into consideration outstanding debt that they have uh, taken on for older children when figuring out financial aid packages for the younger children who are college-bound in, you know, in years to come. Yeah, you know, Beth, if they were really smart, they would just have twins, and then they got to think about both the kids at the same time. <laughs> don't have to worry about who comes who comes first in that case. I don't, um, I don't know who would do that. <laughs> yeah, who who would have twins? It's crazy. Um, now, there are some situations where um, where children, you know, or students rather, are going to take out a loan, and, and maybe there's a cosign process where parents are cosigning a loan for the student. Um, how might you think about that cosign, and how does that potentially affect a parent's credit when they're now connected to their student. So co-signers really need to remember, Ian, that they're equally responsible as Mm -hmm. paying that loan as their student is. So parents may not realize or a co-signer may not realize that that loan that they're co-signing on is going to show up on their credit report. So if their student, when they go into repayment, is late um, on payments, that's going to impact their credit. Or let's say that a um, parent has taken on or co-signed with an older student for four years, and they have about $80,000 in outstanding debt, co-signed debt. Well, that's going to impact their overall debt-to-income ratio. So if that parent is looking now to co-sign for other children in the future, that could potentially impact interest rates for other loans that they're going to take on for other children. But parents should also think about their own financial goals. You know, if you have a parent who's looking to buy a car or maybe to do a home improvement at the same time that they're co-signing on loans, these decisions that they're making could impact their ability to get a better interest rate on a home equity loan or it could impact them getting a better interest rate on a car loan or maybe even being able to secure that loan without a co-signer because it could put them in a place that their debt-to-income debt debt ratio is out of whack. Um, so it's something that a family should really consider of what does this mean 
if we are co-signing. But a couple other things that I often think that families don't think about when they're co-signing is not that we want to think about something bad happening to our child or our students, but we know we can't always plan for unfortunate, you know, death and permanent disability. And mm-hmm. so families might want to look at, you know, is there a death or permanent disability clause with the lender that they're co-signing with for their student? Because God forbid something were to happen to their student, they may still be on the hook for repaying that loan. And that's a tragedy. I mean, that really is a tragedy for that family. And now to be stuck with this additional debt. Yeah. And some families... You know, look at taking out an insurance policy in the amount that they're planning to borrow if the loan can't be discharged. So they want to make sure that they have some type of backup plan, that if for some reason they are, you know, put on that they have to pay this debt back and that student is no longer with them, that they're going to have something that's going to be able to cover that. And, you know, I hate to talk about that, but it's something that I think that it's important to bring up because we can't always plan for those unfortunate happenings. No, I think that, you know, it's not something you ever want to talk about, but I think it's an important thing just to be aware of, and you know, in terms of covering all your bases. It's a big, a big obligation, uh, you know, for, for families to think about. Um, Beth, we got time for one more. I just wanted to ask if you have any other additional thoughts that you think uh, might be important for, for students and families in, in the last sort of 30, 30 to 45 seconds we have here. I mean, the couple things that I think that families should think about is there are tools and resources out there that they can use to educate themselves, and there's no surprises. There's a lot of online calculators that they can run before making that decision how much is right to borrow. So run those calculators. Uh, the second thing is a student should consider what their big plan is. Their bachelor's mm-hmm. degree may be just the first step for them. So if mm-hmm. they're thinking on going to graduate school, think about how their undergraduate debt is going to compound with graduate school debt and what that might mean in the decisions that they're making and how that might impact future decisions that I started early on in terms of being able to move out on their own, buy a car, or maybe a house in the future for themselves. Great. Beth, that's that's so helpful. Thank you so much for letting us borrow your expertise today. I think we're we're in your debt for that. I'm sorry, that was terrible. Thanks thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) So folks, that's all for today's show. And next week, we're going to welcome our partners from Edmit to have a look at this year's trends in merit aid and what they might say about your opportunities to negotiate a better aid package this year. And Beth Heaton will be joined by Kathy Ruby to ask and answer all your admissions and financial aid questions. You can still send them along to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now until next time, beware the Ides of March. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.